you got your Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I mentioned to you last Wednesday, if you were here, that uh, Wednesday nights this fall, we're going to be in a series in CBS uh, on the church. We talked last week a, a little bit about that. We talked about the importance of the local church in your life. Uh, in fact, it was a little stronger than that. We talked about the necessity of the local church in your life, not just the importance of it. Um, it's necessary for you to have a for you to have a faithful walk with Christ. It's necessary. I maintain, um, yeah, unless you are unless you are living in extraordinary circumstances where you are the only known believer in your land, <laughs> unless that's you, that the. I think, it's, I think the, the, the local church is necessary in your life in some ways for you to have even the assurance of your salvation. That's a strong statement, I know. But each week we're going to talk about uh, something new. We're going to talk about the people of the church tonight. And uh, it's going to a whole range of things. We'll go ahead and tell you the different things we're going to talk about this whole semester and hopefully uh, tease you to keep coming. Um. So tonight we're going to talk about the people of the church. Topics that are upcoming are going to include next week the design of the church. We're going to talk about gifts and roles that we have in the church. And we're going to talk about the purpose of the church. And that we're going to talk about why is, what is church membership and why is church membership important. Um, yeah. And then we're going to spend like two weeks on the worship of the church. Two weeks on that. Take one week and talk about the worshipers. That's us. And then the next week, we're going to talk about the practices. That is what we do in worship. So week one on the worshipers is who we are as worshipers. Next week is what do we do when we worship. Okay? Then one week that you really don't want to miss is that it's this IMF panel. That's International Missions Festival. Man, you're, you're about to start seeing the, the building uh, look different because they start, it starts transforming. They're going to gearing up for the International Missions Festival that we have every year, the first week of October. Um, it's awesome. And on that Wednesday night, that, that, that Wednesday night of that week, we always have all, all the missionaries that come here from all over the world, literally all over the world. Some of them, we don't even tell you where they live and work. All of them come in here on Wednesday night. And we, we usually have like a, a panel um, where it's kind of like just a Q&A. It's, it's awesome. Y'all, we have like 56 missionaries coming here this year. That's wild. Uh, so you want to be here for that. And uh, it's always fascinating. After that, we're going to jump back into our series and do two weeks on the history of the church. As if I could tell you the history of the church in two weeks. I'm not even going to try. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that I'm going to take the history of the church in a particular way. I'll take two weeks on that. I'm going to talk about the first week about the church persecuted. Okay? So talk about through, through church history what persecution has looked like and what it, what it has done to the church throughout its history. Then, the second week, I'm going to talk about the church in power. Not the church persecuted, but the church in power. And in and, and, and that way... What has the church looked like when 
seemingly it has been in positions of power in the world. And what has that position of power done to the church during those years? I think that'll be fascinating. Um, then to summarize that, we're going to talk about the struggle of the church. Uh, we'll talk about that from the book of Revelation. So if only for that, come. And uh, then the last weekend in October, or the last Wednesday in October, we're going to talk about the reformation of the church. That's going to be a fun night. Something happened 500 years ago that has affected your whole life, whether or not you've ever even heard of the Reformation. Like, you, know, you may not even know what that is, but it has affected your whole life. Isn't that wild? Um, then on, uh, on, on November 6th, we're going to talk about the mission of the church, and you really don't want to miss that one because we're going to have a guest speaker that night, none other than Brother Al. Oh, yeah. The right Reverend Samuel Alto Jackson, Jr. Oh, yes. In the flesh, on this stage, talking about missions. All right. And then we're going to wrap up uh, the week before finals week with the future of the church. That's also from the book of Revelation. So I'm really looking forward to this series. Some of it's going to be, okay, I've heard this before. That's, I'm, I'm totally cool with that. I just so y'all know me, I don't care if I, I, in fact, it's my aim, really, to tell you things that you've heard a thousand times, because there's nothing new in the Bible, and so I'm doing something wrong if it's novel, and, uh, and what's going to help you in the day of trouble is the thing that you've heard a thousand times, not the thing that you've heard once that was kind of cool. You won't remember it next year, right? And so uh, some of this, though, hopefully will be new to you in the sense of the the histories, some of the history stuff and, and stuff like that. And I'm excited about it because I think it's going to be encouraging to us. It's going to rebuke us sometimes where we need it, I think. Teach us some important things. And I think in, in any way, uh, it's going to be really relevant. So like I said, tonight we're going to talk about the people of the church. Who makes up the church? Who is it? And as soon as we say that or ask that question, who, who makes up this thing called the church? That, that asking it that way comes with an assumption. When I say who makes up the church, it comes with an assumption, a presupposition. That assumes that the church is a people and not a place. Who makes up the church, right? It's, not the, it's the people. It's not the place where that people gathers. It's the people that gather there, wherever it is. The people move, so does the church. Okay? We should all get up and walk outside. The church has just moved, even though this building didn't and this room didn't. Sometimes you'll, uh, just, I'm, and, uh, uh, you know, if this is you, uh, stop. Uh, sometimes you'll hear people talk about this building as like the house of God. If that's you, stop. Uh, I can remember when they say this is the house of God, they're talking about the building. I can remember when I was a kid. <laughs> running all over the church building before and after the service like every kid does. And I would occasionally have grown-ups in my church like get on to me, tell me to stop running. Why? Because this is God's house. Don't run in God's house, implying that there is something really sacred and holy about this place. And, and I shouldn't be running around in it. That's disrespectful to this place, which is God's house. It actually worked. Um, I stopped running, though not because I, I, I just, just I, that I agreed with it theologically. I didn't know any better, and, the, and like the, the seven-year-old me hearing that, 
hearing that First Baptist Church Piedmont was God's house, seven-year-old me, uh, it, I was scared even to go down some halls in the back of the church for fear that God was going to come around the corner. Because <laughs> I walk around my house, apparently God's going to be walking around his. The Bible never talks like that. The Bible never talks like that. Where people get that notion. Um, in Hebrews 3, for example, the author is comparing Jesus and Moses we don't have time to go to the big old fat argument, but here, comparing Jesus and Mo- Moses, and here's what he says about Jesus. But Christ is faithful over God's house, okay, here's that language, as a son, and we are his house. We're his house, if indeed we hold fast our confession and our boasting and hope. So we are the house. Don't run in God's house. I'm not. I am God's house. I'm running. This isn't God's house. We are. So we come back to the original question. Who are the people of the church? Who makes up the church? Who are the people? So that's what I hope we can think about together for just a minute tonight. And we're going to do it from a, probably an overlooked or hastily read by verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you found that in your Bible, we'll just read the first three verses of the book, but zero in on verse 2. So here we go. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray and ask God's help to think about his word. God, our Father, this is your inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. We only say that because that's what it says about itself. And that's circular, yes. But it is your word, and there is nothing higher than you to appeal to. Any claim to an ultimate authority is circular, and therefore, it's what we confess because it's what you've said. So, Father, give us help to think about the simple truth tonight about your church, and give us eyes to see the truth, give us minds to understand it, hearts to embrace it and love it, wills to obey whatever it might lead us to do give me the help that i need to teach give us all yours to hear i pray in jesus name amen okay like i said we're going to take our cue from verse two to the church of god that is in corinth to those sanctified in christ jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our lord jesus christ both their lord and ours and there's a ton in that simple verse that we often just blaze by. So let's get to the meat of the letter. So we just blaze by ones like that. And, uh, but it's more, there's more there than we're going to bring out tonight. What I want to do from that one verse tonight is to highlight just three basic characteristics of the church. Okay, Three basic characteristics. Probably nothing new to you. But here we go. First of all, the church is regenerate. You know, what in the world does that mean? I hope to explain it. The church is regenerate. 
go ahead and tell you, it means it's full of Christians. It's comprised of Christians. Secondly, the church is local. The church is local. And thirdly, the church is universal. Are those contradictory? No. Local and it's universal. So let's think through each of these and see where we see them in this verse and why each of them is important. The first, the church is regenerate. What in the world does that mean? It means that the church, the people that make up the church, is made up of those who are believers. They are believers. Those who have professed faith in Christ as their Savior and as their Lord, who confess themselves to be Christians. That's who the church is. That's who makes up the church. Where do we get this idea? From a lot of places, but here's just one. See it in verse 2. You can see it here. To the church of God that is in Corinth, specifically, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Who, who made up the church in Corinth? Those who were sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. So now some of those words might sound to you to be saying more than they actually are saying. Because you might hear words like sanctified and, and saints and, and think, that it's just a bunch of perfect people or a bunch of just really, really good people. And it should, and it should be full of people that are striving to be that, to be quite honest. But in this, in this verse, it is far from talking about a bunch of perfect people or even a bunch of really good people. Um, and, and that's not what it's saying. If you want any evidence of that, just read 1 Corinthians. Okay? Because in chapter 3... He's talking about all sorts of divisions in the church that were causing a lot of problems. In chapter 5, Paul is rebuking them in that chapter because there's a man in that church who was committing sexual immorality with his stepmother. And everybody knew it and nobody was doing anything about it. In fact, they were trying to justify it. Hey, we're forgiven in Christ. And so, hey, go for it. In chapter 6, Paul has rebuking there because they're, they're, when they were all suing each other in court. They had disagreements, and they weren't just working out. They want to sue you, and they were doing that. Imagine that's going on in the church. Chapter 10, he's talking about idolatry among them. Chapter 11, he's talking about contention among them when they, when they took the Lord's Supper. I mean, over and over and over, all the way throughout this whole letter. And that's not even a full list. Paul was writing this whole letter specifically to address all those issues. That's the whole reason he wrote 1 Corinthians, because he knew there's like half a dozen things wrong with him. He writes this letter to say, okay, I'm going to address this, I'm going to address this, I'm going to address this, and this, and this, and this. I mean, stuff was wrong, and bad stuff. Bad stuff, especially chapter 5. And yet, with all of those things in mind, these people are suing each other. One guy's sleeping with his stepmom. Like, all of that stuff going on. He sits, I'm going to write him a letter. And when he sits down and he writes these Corinthians letter, he still referred to them as sanctified in Christ. Called to be saints. Man. And they were sanctified saints, even if they weren't acting like it. So what does it mean? If that's true, what does it mean to be a sanctified saint? Sanctified here just means they have been set apart in some sense. These are people who have been set apart in some sense. And the saints part just means they are holy in some sense. The, 
the Greek word translated saints there is hagiosmos, which you might have like the NIV or something like that, and it'll say holy ones. It may not say saints. It might say holy ones, and that's not bad. That's what saints kind of mean. So they're holy in some sense, but obviously not by their own actions as described in this letter. So in what sense were they set apart? In what sense were they holy? In the sense that they had professed faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, and the moment they did that, they were set apart by Him as His people. Set apart as His people. And they're, they're holy because by faith in Christ, when you trust in Christ, you don't magically become holy in practice, but the moment you put your faith in Christ, you are clothed in the sight of God with the perfect righteousness of Jesus. So when he looks at you, he sees Jesus. He treat, he treated, on the cross, he treated Jesus as if he lived your life. So that when you trust him, he can now treat you as if you've lived Jesus' life. That's crazy. And then that's true of every believer. If you've repented of your sins and put your faith and hope in Christ and your only Savior and you... And, 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 and committed Him as your Lord, you have been set apart in the sight of God as uniquely belonging to Him. And you have been given His righteousness to stand before God unafraid. He took your sins on the cross so He can give you His righteousness. And Paul says that they are the people who made up this church that's in Corinth. Not, only, not, not that it's only believers who are allowed in, in this building. Not, not in a million years would that ever be true. Anybody is allowed in this building. Anybody of any stripe, anyone and everyone, but those who are actually the church in this building are those who are trusting in Christ and are believers. In all throughout the New Testament, believers, here's what I'm getting by this, not only that they are, that the church is made up of believers, but let me say this too, that all throughout the New Testament, believers are Everywhere, they are all very consciously and purposefully a part of the church. All throughout the New Testament. The believers, and not only that the church is made up of believers, but when you, when you zoom in on a believer, when, when you zoom in on a believer in the New Testament, that believer is also in their own mindset, very consciously and very purposefully part of a local church. There is not a category in the Bible for Christians who aren't a part of the church. There's not a category in the Bible for a Christian who's just kind of floating around. It's just not. No, I mean, like we talked about last week, for those who are believers, it is in the gathering of the church that we are confirmed in our faith. That's why I said I, you have a hard time being even be assured of your faith if you're not in the church. It's the church that gives you the affirmation. Yes, we believe you're a Christian because you're a profession of faith. So we're confirmed in our faith. We're guarded in our faith. The church gives us a place to practice your faith. Like we saw last year, there's like 50-something commands that you simply cannot obey by yourself. You cannot obey it. Every command that has the words one another in it is a command you're disobeying all the time. If, if you're not part of a local church. Because that's the one another in which to obey it. Yeah. And we see in Acts 2.47, this early church, the Lord added to their number 
the Lord added to their number, to, to whose number? The church in Jerusalem added to their number. Who did, who did he add day by day? Those who were being saved. Right? So the church is regenerate, meaning it's regenerate means, in the Bible words, born again. That's what regenerate means. That's the people who make up the church, people who are born again and have professed faith in Christ. Why is that the way? Because it's, it's in the church that we go on record, right? I'm going on record that I'm a Christian. Like I'm going on record. I'm not just telling you that. Look at my life. I'm, I'm connecting myself with this people, and we're all Christians, you know, professing to be. It's, it's, to get in the church, if you're not a believer coming into the church, baptism is where we go public that we're trusting in Christ. We're committing to follow him, and it's in committing to the church that we're, we're on record as belonging to Christ, belonging to his people. If you have no desire to belong to Christ's people, I question your, your desire to belong to Christ. Because Christ laid down his life for his people. And for those who come to faith in Christ, it is God's design that they are brought into this family of believers called the church so that they aren't left alone to try to figure this Christian life out on their own. That's getting into the second truth, with the church is local. What does that mean? It means that uh, believers make up churches in different definite locations. Different definite locations. Look again at chapter 1, verse 2. To the church that is in Corinth. To the church that is in Corinth. When he wrote to the Thessalonians, two letters, he said, to the church of the Thessalonians, to the church that's in Thessalonica. There's one over there. You know, when he wrote to the Galatians, to the churches of Galatia. Different, definite locations. When we, when we, in other words, when we come to faith in Christ, or we are in Christ, um, we don't just become a part of this universal idea of the church. Okay? When we come to faith in Christ, we don't just become a part of this universal idea of the church. Though that is a truth. It is true. We'll talk about the next point. But I said we don't just become that. We don't just become a member of this universal idea of this thing called the church. Can I just speculate for a second? I think it's easier, I think it's easier for a lot of people to like the idea of belonging to this universal idea of the church. It's easier for them to like that than belonging to a particular church where you live. And still speculating, I think that's true for a number of reasons, but it has gained strength in recent years and decades because of technology. I'm not just spitballing here. I think there's, I think there's research to back it up. Um, because technology, especially our phones, I feel it in my own life. So don't at me. I, I, I feel it in my own life. Technology, especially our phones, has dislocated us. Dislocated us. It allows community to be virtual. And it allows, it means that we can, and, and, we, and, and we really feel these things. It means that we can somehow feel much closer to someone a thousand miles away than we do to someone one mile away. 
That's kind of strange. This past summer, if you're ever here during the summer, welcome. I, I love the summer crowd. It's all pared down. It's just me and you and you and me. And we have summer Bible study. We usually, a lot of times, we just read through a book together. This past summer, we read through 12 ways your phone is changing you. There's actually more than 12 ways, but 12 is enough to make a book. And here's one part of that book. On top of all this, the technological age expedites physical dislocation, says theologian Kevin Van Hooser, who said, one of the problems with globalization, transportation, and communications technology and modernity in general is that these benefits also come with a cost, displacedness. The result of our ability to talk to people anywhere in the world instantaneously or to travel to the other side of the, of the planet in a matter of hours. That's bonkers. I've done that. It's bonkers that I can go to like Hong Kong today. Think about that. Distance is no longer an impediment. That's potentially a good thing to be sure. But on the other hand, our connectedness to places near and far makes it harder for any one place to feel like home. That's true. That's the river we're swimming in every day. And it can sometimes feel like we're having to force ourselves to believe that this flesh and blood people is that important. But it is. And you and I need this whole local group of people called Lakeview Baptist Church in this location. And, it, and it's all of us together who are bearing witness to Christ in Auburn by who we are, not just individually, but who we are together and how we live together, how we love each other, how we serve each other. You need, you need the fellowship of the flesh and blood sitting right next to you more than you need the communication of people on social media. You need the teaching and the preaching of a flesh and blood local church more than somebody you hear on a podcast that you've never met. You need the accountability of this physical church family around you because you can hardly get it any other way. It's a mercy to us that in God's design, He gathers His people together. And we'll explain more in, in the coming weeks. I gave you all those topics, why that is such a mercy. At the very least, it tells us that if he commands us and he expects us to join together as a church when we are believers, if he commands it and he expects it, then we need it. We need it. And it's, it's true that as we, as we gather together as believers in this local church, we, it, it is true. We start as a believer, we come to this local church, but then as we are in this local church, we are also part of something much bigger. Okay? This universal Look again at verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And I just want to quickly draw your attention, quickly before we close, to two phrases here. The first one is in, in every place, and the second phrase is call upon his name. Or call upon the name. In every place and call upon the name. What about in every place? Um, 
Well, I think those two phrases, by the way, point to two aspects of this universal church. I think the phrase, in every place, teaches us that the universal church is Catholic with a little c. Catholic with a little c. Not the Roman Catholic, big C, capital C church. Little c, that, 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 and I, I'm, tell, I'm using that word because it's an important one because it's in all the ancient creeds of the Christian church that you need to know. Catholic c, little c means worldwide. It just means worldwide. So when, when the early church wrote the Apostles' Creed, you ever heard of the Apostles' Creed? Some of your churches growing up might have said the Apostles' Creed every week. And toward the end of the Apostles' Creed, you say, you say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Little c. And that simply means that you're confessing your belief that the Lord Jesus is saving people all over the world just like he saved you. That's what you're saying. And that's what Paul is saying when he refers to all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. It's an encouragement to us in this little place to know that God is doing something all over this world. There's, in a very real sense, our church family is worldwide. I have more in common with a brother in Christ in Uganda than I do with an unbeliever across the road in some real sense. Think about that. That's wild. But that other phrase is to call upon the name. Tells us something about this universal church. Not that it's just Catholic in a, with a little c in the sense that it's worldwide. But it's also historic. It's historic. In, a, in the sense that it includes all those who have gone before us. Not just all those who are around us right now in the world. All those who have also gone before us. Let me take you on a little tour. I think it's, in, I think it's uh, in, instructive that he, Paul used that phrase. Not just, not just all those who in every place are sanctified in Christ. Not just the, those who in every place are called to be saints. But he specifically says those who in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. They call upon the name. Take a little tour real quick. Way back in Genesis. Way back in Genesis. Cain and Abel. God created Adam and Eve. They had two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain killed Abel, right? And God in his kind providence gave them another son to replace Abel. They named his name Seth. Here's how chapter 5, or excuse me, chapter 4 ends let's begin in verse 25 and adam this is not on the screen and adam knew his wife again and she bore a son and called his name seth for she said god has appointed for me another offspring instead of abel for cain killed him to seth also a son was born and he called his name enosh at that time people began to call upon the name of the lord yeah that's awesome i'll just flip over a few pages to chapter 12 and here, a few generations go by, a flood happens. God is still redeeming a people, and he zeroes in on this man. Y'all do know that, that Genesis is 50 chapters, and like the first 11 chapters are like warp speed. Creation of the world, blah, 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 like all this. And then it gets to chapter 12, and it stops on this one guy, Abram, 
And it follows his little tiny family for the rest of the book till chapter 50. And he gets to Abram in chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you, you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all her possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they went out to go, set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. For there he, from there he moved to the hill country to the east of Bethel, pitched his tent with Bethel on the east, Ai on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. There he is, calling upon the name of the Lord. Let me just flip over a few pages to chapter 26. And you got... Isaac here. You got Isaac. Chapter 26. Isaac got a bunch of stuff going on. Just look at verse 25. And there where Isaac was in Beersheba, he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord. Pitched his tent there. Man, that's how the scriptures describe believers. They call upon the name of the Lord. That's how the psalmist does it. Psalm 105.1 Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the people. Sing praises to Him. Sing praises to Him. Joel. The prophet. The minor prophet Joel. If you can't find Joel real quick, don't worry about it. Because I can't. <laughs> Seriously, I taught through these minor prophets this summer. I still can't find them. Um, Joel prophesies what's going to happen at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, beginning verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward, and I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth. Blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's exactly what happens. That's, that's quoted in, by Paul in Romans 10.13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Just one more verse, been in like in Acts twenty two, sixteen. Why now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. I think it's important that when he says, Call to be those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, what am I getting at? That's not just meaning everybody that's calling on his name now. I think that phrase harkens back that there's a lot who have gone before us. The, the, the Southern Baptist Confession of Faith says, the New Testament speaks also of the, of the church as the body of Christ, which includes 
all of the, all of the redeemed of all the ages from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Oh, you've got to turn to this one. Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is all of these, like, by faith. It goes way back. By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. It's all these, these believers of the Old Testament. And it's awesome. They're, they're dying for their faith. They're giving their lives for their faith. And, it, and you see things like verse 16. They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. And God's not ashamed to be called their God. He's prepared for them a city. Oh, it's awesome. And then you get to the end of the chapter. And it's like, wah, 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 wah. Verses 39 and 40. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Are you kidding me? Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. That is saying, you could put at the end of verse 39 a big fat yet. They did not receive what was promised yet. Because it says, God has provided something better for us that apart from us, they won't be made perfect. So they're in a good place right now, but they're not in the final place yet. It's when the Lord Jesus comes back that all the redeemed of all the ages are going to go in together. Right? I love the thought that, that when we teach and when we preach these things and when we stand and we sing these songs, that we're joining this same chorus that's been singing for thousands of years. Awesome. And you can see, you can see the beautiful picture that this paints. A person comes to faith in Christ, and they're joined together in this meek and mild little humble local church to grow in their Christian life, to grow their, in their faith their whole life long in this humble little local church. And when they get to the end, they realize that their family isn't just this people they were seeing week in and week out, but it's people from every tribe and nation and tongue, from every generation until now. And we all go in together. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's the people of the church. Let's pray.